Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, finishing the uh, topic of agency, I will cover fiduciary duty, and then I will move on to a little bit of lightweight introduction to what you, the, what you should be ready for as far as the final exam goes. Wednesday is entirely review for the final exam, and so I encourage you to come with questions because I will take my time to tell you what I think you need to know for the final, and then it will be up to you to ask me questions about the final exam. So that will be our Wednesday topic. <clears throat> but to begin, we will have a, a last look at the numbers for uh, maybe, I might do it on Wednesday too. But as you can see, it is just a, there's no real movement one way or the other. The Dow is just barely down a tiny bit. The S&P 500 is up a little tiny bit. The NASDAQ is down a little bit. So there's really not much to say here. It's just kind of like a day when everyone is waiting on the sidelines to see what happens next. Uh, as you can see, with the S&P 500, the OBV, the unbalanced volume, is about a third of what it typically is, uh, has been over the last year. So it's really in that wait and see category. So going over here and having a look at some other uh, information, crude, as I had said before, it's found that trading band from 72 to 79. It's sitting right in the, about in the middle of it now, and it's kind of parked there. Month ago, or a little more than that, oil was way up, and everyone said it's going higher. Nah, it's back down where it was, and the gold bugs have been sufficiently quieted down that uh, gold is below two thousand dollars an ounce. That neckline, so apparently the uh, economic apocalypse has been po postponed. Now, interestingly, the euro is depreciating against the dollar. That $1.10 neckline for a euro has gone, uh, has uh, failed to hold, and notwithstanding the claims that we were going to get to $1.12, $1.15 on the euro, the euro is depreciating. And so the dollar is strengthening again. And as you can see, the uh, pound sterling, same thing, depreciating. And the yen is backward, it is actually depreciating as well. So the US dollar is strengthening. Now the 10-year bonds, yield is up, price is down. So that means that there's a sell-off from the bond market, but it sure isn't going over to the equities market at all. So it's hard to tell. It looks like everyone's, a lot of investors are just moving their investments to cash to see where we go from here. And uh, Nikkei was up actually very strongly last night. It made it almost a percent rise in the two, Nikkei 225. London started out plowing downward, but it began to recover, and it ended up about half a percent above where it had started the day. So 
kind of hard to say where we are right now as far as the global environment isn't much more excited than what's happening over here with equities. What does that mean? Well, uh, apparently we're going to have one more rate hike by the Fed. Inflation has cooled down, but the Federal Reserve is peeing all over itself because employment is too hot right now. So, uh, God forbid we should have wages catch up to uh, to the rate of inflation and all that. So we'll probably have one more rate hike, and that would explain why the uh, euro and euro, the pound, and the yen are all falling. Interest rates higher in the United States than they are in other parts of the world. That means that U.S. dollar will appreciate against other currencies, meaning that those currencies will depreciate against the dollar. <sighs> Enough of that. Now, let me talk here. I'm going to go into the last part of the overall lecture on agency. And there's one last topic. I've got to clean up agency costs before I go on. But to refresh you from the last lecture, we talk about, we're talking about the agency dilemma. The agency dilemma, and this is all in the PowerPoint, agency PowerPoint that's available to you. The agent has incentive to maximize its own welfare its own welfare instead of the agents instead of the principals I'm sorry instead of the principles. And it is the principal's job to monitor and enforce. Remember, monitoring and enforcing is the job of the principal, not of the agent. The agent is going to try to extract its agency costs, and it will be the job of the principal to keep that from happening. There is, an ex there is an extraordinarily important exception to this, and that's what we talk about with fiduciary duty. But for now, I began la the last class, uh, I ended the last class, because in finance, what we care about is liquidated value. We need to be able to talk about what costs the agents are actually extracting, the dollar amount of extraction. Now the first one that I talked about was perquisites. Benefits that an agent extracts by virtue of position. Perks, as we sometimes say. The executive who has a ginormous desk that is unnecessarily large. That money came from shareholder wealth. The executives who travel first class to and stay in nice motels and five, eat at five-star restaurants. That's the shareholder's money. 
Those executives are just agents. And yet, by virtue of their positions, they take those costs from the shareholders. The next one I brought up, the, uh, the last one I brought up in the previous lecture, was shirking, avoiding duties. The employee who spends excessive time walking around chatting with other employees, takes a few extra minutes for a smoke break or for a lunch, hands his work to other to his subordinates that he's supposed to do. Those are all shirking, avoiding duties that are incumbent upon that agent. And it is quite, uh, quite a thing. Now, I'll go on to the next several. Another agency cost, not recognized as much, but very important, is lying. Yeah, I'm almost finished with that project. You haven't even started that project. Yeah, well, I thought I sent you an email. I must have not hit the send button. You never wrote the email. Uh, well, that was the guy who told me to do this, or I was shown this way by someone else. The lying and it is a cost because you have to fix. Sooner or later, the lie comes out and it has to be fixed. And that's just the way it is. So lying is an agency cost. Now here's one that is rather well known, is direct theft. Stealing. You're an agent, you're not being monitored and monitoring and enforcement is inadequate, and so you get by with taking stuff. That, belong, that value belonged to the shareholders and you stole it. A couple of pencils going home with you or something like that. Yeah, that's trivial. Uh, direct theft. Uh, classic one from a long time ago we talked about in uh, my MBA classes was um, uh, the, at, a rough, at um, checkout, people who pay with cash the uh, cashier just quietly sets it on the table and says, next person, and then every now and then just scoops the cash into the pocket if people pay, pay with exact change so that it never registers as a sale. That's another one of the direct theft. They are all over the place. It is common. It is not well documented how much it is, but it is a significant amount. A lot of companies, retail, say, well, we've got a lot of customers shoplifting and stealing. They don't include the cost, the stealing that is done by the agents themselves in quite a few circumstances. Okay, now, the last one, which is, I will spend a little more time on, is incompetence. Is an agency cost. Incompetence. Have you, any of you ever worked for, worked with someone who was as dumb as a box of rocks? And that's kind of giving rocks a bad name. Incompetence is a huge problem. And in fact, it is a well understood problem. Many years ago, decades ago, a management guru by the name of Dr. Peter 
wrote a book about this, and at the time people thought it was kind of a joke. It was called The Peter Principle. We have now come to understand that it is not funny, it is a real phenomenon, and it is almost rises to the level of a law of business, uh, uh, an axiom, as it were. The Peter Principle says this, every employee will rise to his or her level of incompetence principle of business and if you think about it you follow it follow my logic here you'll see that it's almost obvious you madam were hired by my company just as an assistant data entry operator you know just get this data into excel well it turned out you're an animal at it you're incredible well obviously in a meritocracy you know you're good i want to promote you we're going to promote you so you go up to the next level and you're sort of you're a you're a senior data, uh, data enter. <laughs> I'm good at this. You are. You're really good. So we promote you again. Oh, to the division. And you're still incredible at your job. Well, you rise up to the corporate headquarters and you're still doing great in your job. Just amazing. Well, one day, the music in your office changes from Muzak to da 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 and everyone's scrambling around running and you're just what what and here comes the CEO in <sighs> walks right up to you you have shown incredible excellence I would like to have you become the chief financial officer of our company global operations you will do everything that is involved in financial analysis and projections join us or die besides you'll get keys to the executive toilets <laughs> you know very well you can't do this job this is beyond you this is global it's not just finance it's all kinds of uh, logistics international analyses direct foreign investments exchange rate hedging all of that you can't do that you know very well you don't you don't have the ability I am offering you $500,000 and a company car. Will you join us? What are you going to do? Mm. Remember, I can throttle you from a distance if you say no. <laughs> I pull out my lifesaver. Are you going to take the job or not? It pays $500,000 a year plus bonuses, plus stock options. You can't do it. But you're the only one who knows you can't do it. What are you going to do? Fake it till you make it. Huh? Fake it till you <laughs> make it. That's what, see, that's the whole point, though. You've risen. People will rise 
as long as they are good at what they do, they excel at what they do, they are going to keep rising until they hit where they can't, and then they'll stay there. We see this in executive ranks all the time of corporations. We see it in sports all the time. You were a great rugby player. Okay. Uh, you were a great rugby player. And then, of course, obviously, we're going to move. Once you uh, retire, we're going to make you an assistant coach. You're a great assistant coach. We put you in the coach's position. You suck. You become nothing but another head uh, coach of the Bears. Sorry. Oh, that was harsh. <laughs> easy, easy. <laughs> you see, the point that I'm making, though, is that eventually you rise to the point where you can't do the job, and that's where you stay. We see it in politics all the time. Rising stars, but they get to a certain point, and then they become the usual incompetent fails at that level. And they keep getting reelected for some reason. But... This is the Peter Principle. And so incompetence is a massive agency cost because companies have, and one of the things that we say in management classes, you go into any work environment, you look around, everyone is on his or her way to or has arrived at the person's level of incompetence. That's just the reality of it. And so we see CEOs, we see executives, we see administrators, even in uh, colleges. We see people rise to their level of incompetence and then they stick there. So this agency cost is quite a, of incompetence is quite a thing. How do we deal with it? It's very difficult to deal with it because oftentimes the decision makers are at their level of incompetence. So that we question, do they have the competence to decide on incompetence? Mm. Okay, that's agency costs. Now let me get to the last point here of in agency. When I say that it, it is the principal's job to monitor and enforce, it's not the agent's job. The agent's job is to do what the principal needs, but the agent has an incentive to do what's right for him or her. And so the monitoring and enforcement must be the principal's job. The principal is the respondeat superior and therefore carries the vicarious liability. But there's a problem with this. In some agency relationships, the principal cannot monitor and enforce. It would be impossible because of some fundamental irreparable defect in the principal's ability to monitor and enforce. Obvious example, the parent-child relationship. The child is the principal and the parent is the agent charged with maximizing the child's welfare. The child doesn't know about monitoring and enforcement, has no physical or possibly even the intellectual mental capacity as a child to know when the agent is extracting agency costs. So there's a good one right there. Another one that is a classic is the board of directors. The board of directors is supposed to carry out the maximization of the wealth of the shareholders. The shareholders cannot monitor and enforce board of directors behavior except through a meeting once a year. 
the doctor-patient relationship. If uh, I, 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 you are my patient, I am the doctor. You are the principal. I am the doctor max, uh, charged with maximizing your health. You don't have medical training. You have no idea what's right and what's wrong. I could give you a pill. You know, <laughs> this will turn you into an aardvark, but I just want to see if it'll work. Right. Now, this is good for your uh, blood. Here, take it. <laughs> the next day you come in looking like an aardvark. Well, goddamn, that worked. Okay? You understand? I mean, you could, be, you could be under anesthesia, and I could be operating on you. You can't monitor and enforce anything when you're like that. I could pull out your colon and say, watch this. You don't know. The lawyer and the client. The lawyer is the agent of the client, but the client doesn't know law. The client is, in fact, in many cases, prohibited from directly approaching the court. It must be through an officer of the court. So the lawyer must carry, uh, the lawyer is the agent. The principal can't monitor and enforce. Another example is a marriage. The husband and the wife are the agents of the marriage. The marriage is the principal. The marriage is just a piece of paper. It can't monitor and enforce the performance of the husband and wife, the, the agents. Another one, speaking from uh, personal background, a soldier swears an oath to the Constitution to protect and defend against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. But the, so the Constitution is the principle, and the soldiers are there to maximize the welfare of the Constitution. But the, again, the Constitution is just a piece of paper. It can't monitor and enforce. It is just an, an, an inanimate object. So there that puts us in this question of what happens when the principal cannot monitor and enforce? Well, that's when we have a special kind of agency relationship that is called fiduciary. A fiduciary relationship, the principal cannot monitor and enforce performance by the agent. Performance by the agent. Again, a fiduciary relationship is one where the principal cannot monitor and enforce performance by the agent. In other words, the agent must monitor and enforce itself. That is unusual, but it is crucial. And it amazes me how little is talked about what it means to be fiduciary, a fiduciary in colleges. When you're in accounting, you are preparing financial statements or you are auditing financial statements, or something of that nature. The, the consumers of those, the constituencies that will use those, do not have probably the training, nor do they have access to the original numbers. And therefore, as the agent, 
the accountant carries fiduciary duty. And this is widely not understood how critical this is. Fiduciary duty is characterized by three pillars. Trust, loyalty, and fidelity. Fidelity is faithfulness. The fiduciary agent must be trustworthy, must be loyal to the end, and must be faithful to the principle. And this is an unusual situation because we operate mostly in a world, for lack of a better term, out of fear of the consequences of wrongful action. But in a fiduciary relationship, that's not how it works. It kind of goes back, it's ancient, this concept. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But maybe one of the best places you could see it was in the, uh, the somewhat mythical uh, concept of the medieval knight who would defend the sovereign with his last breath and all that kind of stuff. But there's more to it than that. This is not... A, okay... Sovereigns, whether they're monarchies or democracies or some other kind of a republic, they will write down, this is a fiduciary duty in their statutory law. But it is far, far more ancient than statutory law. Fiduciary duty is common law. The law of tribes going back far, far before history was written that there had to be this place of trust and loyalty and fidelity where your urges, your desires to do for yourself are pushed aside. In terms of definitions, if you look at Black's Law Dictionary, the uh, standard of how law is uh, of words and terms, Fiduciary duty is described as the highest duty implied by law. This is Black's Law Dictionary. The highest duty implied by law. Two parts of that, that I'm, two words in that are important. Highest. Highest means that no, there isn't a ranking of highest. Highest is highest. Well, I got a duty over here and I got a duty over there. Which one do I prioritize? No. A fiduciary duty does not have a prioritization option. And I will address that in a moment. But another part of that definition is this word implied. In other words, embedded deep into our common law deep into common law. Thousands of years ago, it was 
Alexander the Great was roaring across the nations, conquering and negotiating with all these different nations, and he was not an idiot. He was not a brute. He was a scholar in his own way. He was sending back all of these constitutions and law sets and uh, things like that from the nations he was encountering and the tribes. And one thing that was evident to the translators back in uh, Athens, uh, back in uh, Macedonia, was that all of these, no matter how widely separated these nations were in um, the world, they all seemed to have a few things that were there in every one of them. Uh, it came to be known as Euskentia in Latin, the law of the nations. And a concept began to develop called us naturalis, the natural law, that all nations seem to have these same basic set of principles. And the most important was this idea, they didn't call it fiduciary duty, but it was fiduciary. There are times when it's not whether or not you can get by with something. There are times when you absolutely do not because you are the one responsible for someone else who is weaker or who is unable to protect himself or herself. Hence why across in Uskentia, you kept seeing all of these laws protecting the innocent in combat and, and battles. You saw rules that, that defined ways that an accused could find a way to speak forth uh, for, for his or her own defense. So in other words, this highest and this implied, this implied part is throughout history, throughout cultures. And it's something that we don't talk about as much now as we used to, but you being in business especially, there are times when the principles uh, in your act in your contracts won't be able to protect themselves and that means that you have to be trustworthy and loyal and faithful to those to those principles who can't do it for themselves and that highest give you a give you a great example of this uh, I owned a business. I've talked about my consulting business. It was quite a thing. I was traveling literally across the world and uh, getting into all kinds of difficult, dangerous situations. But it, I had shareholders. I had fiduciary duty to them. I had to have their trust, their loyalty, and their fidelity. So by God, I was going to do that. But I was also a parent and a partner in a marriage. But I have a duty there too, fiduciary. The kids couldn't protect, uh, protect themselves. Oh, well, I'll put that as my highest too. I had a marriage. Well, I've got to make sure that stays in place too. Well, that's my highest. Well, how do I prioritize those? Well, it works itself out. One night I came home and the home was dark. The kids were gone. The partner was gone. That was it. You see, fiduciary duty, if you don't carry it out, it will find a way to resolve the situation itself. That's the last of agency, my, my high-level bitching exercise for the semester. Remember it, though. The world is going to depend on you, and the world cannot protect itself. That's our job. <sighs> Enough of that ranting. Now, 
I want to go on and talk a little bit about the midterm. Okay, uh, the midterm, the final exam. Just take this down. We'll do a full-blown review on Wednesday, but this is a heads up on a few important pointers just to get you started. First things first. Um, it will be two hours, and it's on... Yours is on Thursday, is it? Yeah, yours is on Thursday. Come early and often to it, and be sure to have your full computer charged, and uh, the battery charged in it, so you don't get sad right in the middle of the exam. Mm. Okay, now down to the uh, nitty gritty. It's comprehensive. The whole course is on display there. Now, as far as the first half, sometimes I'll just copy and paste a problem from the midterm onto the final, change a few words maybe, or scramble the order of answers. <clears throat> but there are some core objectives that I have to establish you've got at the end of the semester. And there are also some that you tripped on, you didn't get a very high percentage. So those are the kind that would be there. The, I level one, two, and three, the questions, so you should know that there will be enough level one and level two questions to get a high C, a decent B on the exam. Do not plow linearly through it. Go for the easies, get them out of the way, and then go back and kill the hard ones. Otherwise, you're going to stall out early in the exam, and then it's going to be 15 minutes left, and you have half the exam to do. Now, number of questions, it's, a, it's approximately 60 of different point values, one, two, or three. Now, I say approximately because some questions, like matching, there's more than one part to it. So you would, uh, it might be a 10-point matching, but that's five two-pointers. So 60 is just a rough number on how many there are. As far as numerical questions go, around 12. Around quantitative. In other words, you put a number in a blank. And I'll talk more about that in the review on uh, Wednesday. But just know that yeah, the numbers are important, but there are other things that are just as important in this. True and false, multiple choice, or multiple guess, I guess, I suppose. Or, um, and uh, maybe a few fill-in-the-blank with a word will be on it. Now, for heaven's sakes, when you are studying, your notes absolutely... And then the book, of course. But I've got a couple of spreadsheets here. Bring them with you. You can calculate your way out of some of the numerical problems if you know how those spreadsheets work. If you know where to put in a couple of numbers, the answer will spit out at you. For heaven's sakes, have those. You're allowed to use Excel on my final, as well as the calculator. Now, as far as what would be a really great study guide, the terms list in your resources. 116 words and terms. Yes? Do we get a note card? You get two. Four by six, front and back. Now, the reason I do this is that I sort of assume that you kept your note card from the midterm, but a few people say, nope, I threw it out right afterwards. <laughs> I'm not mentioning any names, but those, th oh, no. <laughs> 
<laughs> pitch them right out. And so, but you do get two, front and back, okay? And you also get your, uh, that formulas, that ratios formula sheet too. Don't write on that one. You got, uh, that's just to have for, for uh, your reference. But these question, but these words and terms right here, those are your best study tool. Don't go to the internet for God's sake. You'll get wrong answers. You'll get incorrect definitions. I have a, a, a classic happen just in my uh, higher one of my higher level courses. The, uh, there was a young man, he had blown off the last half of the course, didn't care, and so he took the final and he was destroyed. And he came back with this violently angry email, I'm right, I'm right, here, I found this. You dumbass, those are internet definitions, they're wrong. And so he just peed himself all over, but I don't think he'll do any more than that. Such is the life of a professor. But anyway, use your notes. Look in the book if you need to. There are a few places where the book, I've told you if the book is not really on tap. If you've got one or two that you can't find in your notes or the podcast or the book, you can send those to me. Don't be like that student who last semester copied and pasted the whole list into an email message and asked me for the definitions of each of them. Don't do that. Yes? That was done. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, one of those, and I've told you along the way, there's a place early in the book where they, uh, where the author incorrectly describes the price earnings ratio. Incorrectly describes it. They uh, the, that. There are two authors. The one who wrote that chapter is not a practitioner. He said that the higher the price to earnings ratio, the safer the stock, which is, in technical terms, bullshit. Uh, but th there's that. But in general, when you look through here, the some a, a number of these terms the book doesn't bring up. Like, for example, and you have to have the notes in your lecture. For example, do any of you remember what OBV is? No, but if... It's on, on balance volume. Remember when I told you that stock charts, like for example, let me pull up a Yahoo, uh, let me, let's have a wall here, Tesla. <coughs> on balance, this volume, that's OBV, that's on balance volume, because this is what is kept on the books as far as buy and sell orders are concerned by brokers and dealers and all that. However, there is volume that is not recorded. Uh, that's the volume on the dark markets. So OBV is on balance, on that balance sheet that the brokers keep. So that might not be all of the volume. I mean, there are these terms that I've brought out at you and that's where I am testing to see if you listened or were you in class? Did you listen to the podcast? So sometimes you'll find those kinds of terminology like bourse. You remember what a bourse is? It's the European term for a stock exchange. On the Swiss bourse or on the uh, Norwegian bourse or something like that. That's just, a, that's just a European term for a stock exchange. And then there are some other ones that uh, just they're not in there. 
uh, or they were minor notes. Now, obviously, I'm not going to test you on all 116 of these terms, but this comprehensive list tells you it's almost like a study guide in itself because it walks you through the course and almost everything that I said in the course. So uh, just know that many of these terms are in the book. It's fine. But some of them, they just are not there. And going to the internet is just perilous as hell uh, for a lot of uh, academic work. The internet is for people who don't know how to form a proper question. You ask a question, you get an answer based upon that question. This is one of the things that I've found out as I've been testing the chat GPT. Chat GPT is the dumbest ass thing I have ever seen in my life. It writes at the level of a 12th grader who's a valedictorian because he or she always writes perfectly grammatical papers and so professors give them A's. Chat GPT makes up numbers. I've, uh, virtually every data analysis I've had to do or ask it for data uh, for an analysis, it makes it up. It just makes up data. So you watch it doing chat GPT or anything like that, like uh, BARD, Google's BARD. They are amazingly stupid, which is relief to me uh, for now. But anyway, okay. So this is, this is a great study guide for you. Now on Wednesday, I'm going to tell you what I think you should know. And then, that's going to take me about 20 minutes. Now, if you're the kind who likes to get out of a class early, you're going to hold, I'm going to say, okay, now your questions. And you're going to hope that everyone shuts up so you can all leave early. Now, if you want to succeed in this test, though, you should raise your hand and say, well, is this going to be on the test? If it isn't, I'm going to say, I'm not, I'm not asking that. You will also be able to ask me questions about, can you do one of these kinds of problems for me? And I'll say, yeah, I'll do one of those problems. If it's not on the final, I'll say, I'm not going to do that because it's not on the final. So that can carve down a lot of your study if you know. I, I, one, of the, one of the odd things about Asperger syndrome is it's very difficult for us to lie. And I can't bluff very well at all. So if you ask me if something's going to be on the test, I'm, I'm just going to say no, if it's not. If, you, if it is, I'll say yes. And if you ask me to show you a problem, then I'll show you a problem. So you remember that. You've got a little bit of control over this final exam in terms of where, how to, what we call cabin your study for it. Okay? You got any questions for me now? Or are you ready to go? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for now I'll tell you yes. Ask me on Wednesday and I might tell you no. Okay? This is informal. You put me in a formal environment and I'll probably say no. I'm not going to ask about that. So that tells you what the answer really is, doesn't it? <laughs> That's all I have for you today. I thank you all.